Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so delighted to have Alex Segura joining me today. I've known him for a long time. I, I'm so I'm so excited to see him break through. So anyhow, <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm going to read you your bio now. <laughs> okay. Alex Segura is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Oni Press and the author of Star Wars Poe Dameron Freefall and the acclaimed Pete Fernandez mystery series. He has also written a number of comic books. A Miami native, he lives in New York City with his wife and children, and his latest novel is called Secret Identity. Alex, I wanted to read your bio to you, especially because it really illustrates how uniquely qualified you are to write noir about a comic books publisher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's so funny because this idea has been percolating for years. I knew that after I wrote the my PI novels, I was going to do a standalone or at least something that would stand on its own as opposed to being a series. And, um, you know, I, I love what Megan Abbott does with her novels. I think she has this magnificent way of bringing noir into worlds that you wouldn't anticipate noir exists, like ballet or cheerleading mm -hmm. or gymnastics. And I thought, you know, what, what, it, what would happen if somebody wrote a noir, and I'm not assuming I'm the first person to ever do this, but I thought, you know, what, wouldn't it be great to have a noir novel set in comics? And that's what got it going. And, um, and it, I don't just love comics as a reader, but I, I really enjoy it as a historian, like from a historical perspective, just like the industry and the business practices and the, so many characters. And so I thought this would be ripe for a murder mystery, like just throw in a murder and here we are. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, and, and you choose to set it in the 70s. Tell me about that time in comic book publishing. I think the big reason I said it then was because, said it then in New York was because it was such a stark contrast to the comic book industry we see today and the New York we know today. Like it's, you know, it's, you know, Times Square is Disney-fied. It's, it's, it's different. And the New York of 1975 was a much more dangerous and menacing place. But there was also this sense of like, we're going to power through this, this financial ruin, this, you know, it's in the wake of Watergate. So I think that's not that nobody doubted our country before, but that's when we had that real great, yeah. like, disillusionment. Um, and in terms of comics, it was a different time because comics weren't everywhere. I mean, now we have like an Ant-Man movie or Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Peacemaker. Like the, and if you're a comic fan, you see those characters and you're like, wow, I never would have imagined seeing them in that level of media. And um, I think in 1975, comics were fading away almost, you know, it was before there were comic shops, before people really had a secondary market, you know, where you could when I was when I started reading comics, I could go to a comic shop and look for a comic that I wanted. Whereas I think in 1975, if you missed it on the newsstand, you missed it. And so the stories were kind of crafted to be done in one and they weren't really there was no continuity, which is to say like these epic ongoing stories. And I think the makeup and to generalize the makeup of the people working in comics were either super fans like Carmen, like people who just grew up and loved comics or you know, more transient, like, I'm going to do this to make some money, and then I'm going to go do my real art. Like, even Stan Lee, like, the joke was he used Stan Lee as his nom de plume for comics because he wanted to save his real name for the great American novel that he never ended up writing. But it's just, you know, at the time, people looked down on comics. And I think financially, the industry was struggling to the point where people were just like, this is not going to last. It was, it was also seen as disposable. Like, these are things you put in your pocket and read and then toss in the trash. Yeah. And so you have um, 
most of your characters are reflecting these anxieties. Uh, there are so many, it, it seems, who do comics on their way to quote unquote real art. Yeah, and it's um, and it's also the idea of art too, because you know, like Carmen's boss, this guy Jeffrey Carlyle, is he inherits the company, and he's got this idea, like I'm I'm gonna you know I'm gonna create great literature, but in the meantime, I'm gonna run this like. Com this comic company that and also sell like porn mags and like pulp novels and just like you know mainstream or mass mass marketed material and um it's funny to kind of explore the spectrum of that perspective like carmen loves comics she wants mm -hmm. to be in comics she i love her because she's always so well prepared there's that moment where she's brainstorming with harvey and he's like well let's start from zero and she's like no let's no, i have I've this got, whole oh, yeah i'm ready to go like i've got all this is my moment um and whereas someone like harvey is like has the benefit of just being one of the guys and he will get his opportunity and he can seize it as he sees fit and um and then you have someone like doug detmer the artist that she collaborates with who is jaded and burnt out and almost I think I think feels a spark of inspiration when he collaborates with Carmen but it doesn't really without spoiling anything doesn't really help him yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, yeah and on the other end of the spectrum there are so many disillusioned men <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah it just I think there was a burnout at that point it was yeah. before before comics became big business, I mean, in the 80s, early to mid 80s, we started to see like merchandising, like you would see a Spider-Man action figure or, you know, you know, we had the Batman show in the late 60s, but it wasn't as commonplace as it is now, obviously. But the 70s were a really unique time because there were also there was also not a lot of editorial oversight. You know, I think there was this churn to get the books out and nobody sure. was thinking nobody was thinking like, oh, this is our important IP. We can't do that to Spider-Man because he's a movie. Now you have to think those way, that way from a corporate perspective. But um, back then it, it was like the Wild West kind of. Yeah, and, and you're so good at depicting like what it was like to be inside a publisher at that time. I used to say when I worked in book publishing, my early years were like battling with paper. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing paper yeah. places and putting it back in other places. Yeah, there's some romance to the mundane details of publishing. Like, you know, there's when we meet Carmen, she kind of rattles off her duties. Like, they're not gl glamorous. Like, she has to organize the holiday party. She has to send invoices and she has to make sure her boss does his job. Like, but that's how it works in publishing. Like, there's like machinery. What I'm not, whether good or bad, there's machinery in place to get the stuff done. And I kind of find that stuff fascinating, having been at newspapers and publishers of different kinds. It's to me that nuts and bolts stuff is really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. Carmen knows that in art, you really must know um, your character inside and out. And that character might lead you on a path uh, to an entirely different place, but it's because this character is so powerful. Tell me about creating her. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because when I wrote my PI series, like Pete kind of showed up and he represented um, a kind of guy I knew in college or grew up with, like a friend, like we had similar backgrounds. And I just thought that's going to be that. And the next time I'll have to kind of, in the same way, like a songwriter, I was reading an interview with Taylor Swift and she said, like, now she can write a love song that isn't necessarily like her experience. She can just craft a song because she's gotten good at the craft. And so I just assume the next protagonist will just be a product of craft um but she showed up and she was similar to a lot of friends and people I knew her background we obviously share a lot of background and then I kind of had to figure out well how do I weave her into this narrative and then 
the story kind of blended around her. And she's she's the opposite of Pete in that she's organized, she's driven, she she has some like anyone else has some baggage in her past, but she's not like defined by it. I think she's I love writing her. I just love that she is this force of nature and she just comes in and tells it like it is, but not in a, I don't think a cliche way. Like she feels she also is vulnerable and um conflicted. Like um the turning point in the novel, I think, is when Harvey approaches her and says, you know, I've got this opportunity to create this character. You want to do it with me? I know you're a fan. Like she's seen for the first time. Like someone says, I know you want to do this. Yes. Um, but you have to do it anonymously. And so she's smart enough to know there's like red flags all over this, but <laughs> passion wins out. Like, I mean, I think if I was given that opportunity, I probably would have taken it too, because it's just that when you have a dream that carries you through your adult life, through your childhood and your adult life, and then you're presented an opportunity, like who would not take it? And that to me is like the truth of noir. Like you're pinned in a corner and you have to make that emotional decision. And then what are the repercussions of that decision? Um, so that that to me defined Carmen, that she made the choice, but then she was like, I'm going to see this through no matter what. I love that. And um, you you certainly hit home that it was a tough time for women to be in the industry and there weren't that many of them. And her boss doesn't take her seriously, even though he does. He knows she's so smart. He He values her opinion in some ways. He just kind of wants to, I guess, gatekeep when she engages with him. Like, it's clear that it annoys him when she's pitching him stories. And he's like, look, I have a plan for you. Like, leave me, like, stop bothering me and just let me, like, curate your life. But that's not how it works. Like, he tells her, oh, I want you to be an editor and maybe you'll help me run the shop one day. And she's like, I don't want that. I want to I want to write like this is why I'm here. Um, and I think. I think he does care for her and he has some respect for her, but he doesn't want to be bothered by her, which is a slight, even if he doesn't want to think about it that way. Yeah. And she's so good because she doesn't take bullshit and yeah. she will call him out and she will call anyone out who um, doesn't behave well to her. And wow, I like talk about a superhero characteristic <laughs> that, that I'm very jealous of. Yeah, me too. I wish I could do that in my own life I'm pretty like conciliatory and talking even even conflict when I'm clearly not at fault I want to talk it out with, <laughs> with whoever I'm, you know it's just like let's be friends but uh there's that one scene where one of the editors basically throws some money on her desk and says you know get me lunch and she's just like no 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 <laughs> it's not gonna fly no, yeah it's not my job and and she is empowered because she is the boss's assistant and she can use that but she also I think independent of that would have said that anyway um and you know like in the opening scene Harvey like tries to do the creepy thing of putting his hand on the small of her back and she's like yeah. we're not having that we're not and that's just that's it down yeah yeah she shuts it down which I appreciate but she's also not a robot right you know right, there's right. a lot of weight to how what she's feeling and I think you know out of the gate that there's something haunting her absolutely and I do want to talk about the title of the book a little bit because yeah. secret identity, of course, is a comic book trope that we all know. But I've I've been thinking about I've I've seen so many headlines lately about <laughs> identity politics. Right. <laughs> How do those uh, mash together? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of the story. I think the challenge was obviously when Carmen showed up, I realized I had to write this character, but then I had to be thoughtful and mindful about 
who this character was and the experiences we share and the ones we don't share. I mean, I'm a straight man and she's a queer woman. And um, that involved some level of, I guess this was the most journalistic book I had to write, I've ever written in terms of just talking to people that live that experience, i.e. women in comics. Like I spoke to women that worked in comics at the time. I had readers who obviously share her life and are queer women and, and gave me a lot of good insight in things that I didn't understand, but, um, or just wasn't my life. Um, but I also, it's not my place to tell like the definitive narrative there. You know, I, it's, she's, she's a character in a mystery novel and I want to be inclusive and thoughtful about it, but I can't claim to be like definitive in that narrative. You know, and I think that's fair. I think I'd rather be, you know, I was talking to Laura Lippman about this. We didn't, not to like name drop, but we were doing an event and she, she said, you know, it's, it's refreshing that you're doing it in a clear way because there's so many times where people are like trying to tell stories that aren't theirs because they feel like they have a right to. And I don't think that's mm -hmm. how it works. I think you have to strive to be right, you know, to be, not be right, but to do it well. I think the challenge is to do it well. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you have to really do the work, <laughs> which is hard. I mean, your acknowledgments are so wonderful for so many oh, reasons. <laughs> I'm an acknowledgments person. Um, yeah, I love writing them. Uh, it's just fun to like, you know, it's, it's a, it takes a village to write a book. And, and so you do, you show us all of the work that went in and, and all of the research. And I love that you name check um, the Alexander Chi essay that was on Vulture uh, I went back to it so many times. Like I, 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 and I think I slid into, time. I slid into his DMs too, and I was like, "Thank you so much for writing this," which I'm sure I'm one of a billion people that have, you know. And, and it's just, yeah. I think the big question is like, why ha have you chosen this person to be your lead character? And is there some like, one thing I never wanted to do was make her identity a plot point. I, I didn't mm -hmm. want that. I just wanted her to be a character in the book that we could relate to and. And of course, you're going to experience part of her life because why else would you have this character in this book? But first and foremost, it's a mystery novel and she's the protagonist. And, you know, and I, you have to be thoughtful about it like anything else. I, I, I think, um, and you're on Twitter as much as I am, there's this sense <laughs> of from an older part of the community that's like, well, I should be allowed to write whatever yeah. I want, whenever yeah. I want. And it's yeah. like, no one's saying don't do that. Just it, be thoughtful about it. It's probably yeah. going to be bad. It's probably bad. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also just be thoughtful and be transparent. And I think that's the best we can do. And the audience will tell you if you got it right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Tell me a little bit more about, in terms of research, um, it seems like you had really a good time um, making 70s references and showing us <laughs> what New York City was like and CBGB. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. That was, um, oh, sorry. There's an ambulance. New York life. Um, <laughs> there's this fantastic book by Will Hermes called uh, Love is a Building on Fire, um, which chronicles his growing up and his experience with music. And what I loved about it was that it obviously hits all the big beats, like the end of Max's Kansas City and the Velvet Underground into CBGB's and the punk scene. But it also talks about jazz, which I'm passionate about, and Latin music. And that really just gave me a texture for New York at the time, like this this crumbling metropolis that was still like had this pulsing like underground music scene and just still was going to power through this this dark time and become something else and that really resonated with me and I think resonated with how I wrote Carmen that she is very similar in that she's like trying to survive like 
you know this as well as anyone, but that first year in New York is, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. hard. I remember it was so lonely coming from Miami, which is like still a spread out city, but it was home mm -hmm. to live in New York and just feel so alone, like surrounded by people and surrounded by work and by places to go and things to do and still feeling that isolation that I really wanted to reflect that. Um, and I never wanted the book to feel in terms of comics and in music and the city to feel like Wikipedia entries like smushed together, like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I wanted it to just be the, the background, the atmosphere, and, and you get the tonal sense. And if people want to dig deeper into who the talking heads are, or like really get into Patti Smith because they read something or read a comic because they read a name mentioned in, in the book, that's great. But I didn't want it to feel like I was rattling off like little factoids. That rules. Um, <laughs> no, but my favorite little detail that is just a setting thing that no one needs to really take in is <laughs> describing um, Carmen's journey taking the E train to the six train and how about 20 years ago there was a um, a bridge built so that you didn't have to go above ground to to make that transfer but yeah. of course in 1975 mm -mm. it was not there <laughs> yeah 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 the um that was that took a lot of fact checking like uh my mother-in-law worked in publishing forever and of course is a lifelong new yorker so she read the manuscript and she was like this is not how the trains were i mean of course i was trying to do my own research but she lived it so she was able yeah. to give notes and um that was my big thing i really wanted it to that sense of verisimilitude that i got from like cavalier and clay like when i was reading it yeah. i felt like i was really there i really wanted to evoke that in terms of just new york and comics and so I had not only beta readers, but just like people who were there that were able to say, no, you can't get sales numbers that quickly. Like it would take three months. And that the timeline was its own adventure. I'm sure Zach, my editor and Maxine, his assistant, um, were kind of pulling their hair out a little bit <laughs> just just because I wanted to make sure the timeline felt right. Like there's a comic convention in the book yeah. and I wanted to make sure it happened and yeah. that she was there on a weekend day, like little uh, obsessive things that kind of make us who we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to the editors. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Maxine. Like Flatiron was very patient with, with me. <laughs> and, and the other details that I loved that I wasn't able to appreciate, but I'm hoping you can tell me more about mm -hmm. are the names of all of the other people in the industry at DC and Marvel. Tell, are, are those real people? Tell me about them. Most of them are real. Like, I, I think being a publishing person and being a marketing person, I knew like kind of generally what my legal wiggle room was. Like, obviously if the person is alive, like you don't want to write a real person doing anything terrible. So most of the people that are just background are like name drops, like, yeah, yeah they're just around. Like, uh, I think Carlisle makes a reference to playing poker with Marv and Len and that's Marv Wolfman and Len Wein who play these legendary poker games and Marv created the Teen Titans, Len Wein created the X-Men. So you have like, I wanted to make it seem like if you squint enough, like you could believe that there is a Triumph Comics, that there is a legendary Lynx book somewhere. Um, and then there are, there are fictional additions to the, I guess, the mythos. Like they're, I think the book starts with them talking about this guy, Len Maynard, who's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of creators that were at the time, like the, the trippy like writer looking to change the medium. Uh, and that was a lot of fun to create these, um, amalgamated versions of these archetypes like the difficult artist like Doug Detmer yeah. is in many ways like they're guys like Alex Toth and Jack Cole and and um you know a lot of a lot of 
creators that were just so persnickety and challenged and just defiant and didn't want to conform to the systems and and they suffered for it because they just didn't get the opportunities that they would have otherwise but that was fun and i think you can see a lot of jeffrey carlisle in a lot of real comic book people but i wanted to give that feeling that carmen was not dancing through a fictionalized version of comics like she was there she if was you there. want to believe that yeah and i want to she was there and i yeah. love even the experience of her going to a con and even the idea that occurs to her that there's this whole new model of selling comic books that can be derived from this experience. Yeah, because I think that's when you're starting to see the first inklings um, of a secondary market or this idea that comics are not disposable, that they're actually going to continue and you want to collect them and not just for the money, but for the story and the experience. And um, there's also another forward looking element that kind of hints at the media explosion that's going to come and, and that I don't want to spoil the book, but it's, it's, you know, I wanted to have that sense of things are going to change and things are going to evolve and move past this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we live in a world where everyone refers to the MCU. <laughs> like Yeah. It's so wild. Like when I was a kid, I was just happy to have a Batman movie or the idea of a Spider-Man movie, not to date myself, but um, now it's like this, these riches of, of options. Like you can just, there are entire streaming services dedicated to superhero stuff, which is amazing. And, and talk to me a little bit about Carmen's feelings about the superhero trope, because I love, and I am sure you've thought about this. Um, she tells Harvey that maybe it's not necessary to have a traumatic origin story. And I'm thinking about trauma plots. Yes. And how, what if it's just enough that society is troubled and it sucks and that makes people mad? Yeah, like what if it should just be enough that she feels like she has a, a, an ability to do some good? And I think it also like, I could relate to it too, because I think a lot of times as writers of color, people want you to write about your trauma, like write, write about the Cuban refugee crisis. And I can't write about that all the time. Like, it's also not like I was born in Miami, like in a suburban home. Like there's only so much I can say about that. Um, and sometimes you want to write something fun and write something entertaining and write something that is just a book and just fun. And I think, I think Carmen, from the perspective of writing the links, just wanted to contribute to this orchestra of characters and had a vision of a really strong female superhero that just chose to do the right thing. And, and it's just funny how Harvey always has to default to like the tropes, like, well, she needs an origin story. She needs this and she needs that. And Carmen is the fresh, excuse me, the fresh voice that um, even though she's as much of a fan, if not more so than he is. And, she, and her interests even hint at, um, the graphic novels that that are on the way yeah yeah the fact that um you know she's into this more continuous narrative like we don't have to do the origin right out of the gate like that's something that you can you, it has always been done but you know let's try and tell something more serialized and more evocative and i think that's also like yeah it tees up things like frank miller on daredevil or like chris claremont on the x-men where it's these long opuses that if you pick up one issue, you'll be entertained, but if you pick them all up and continue to read them, you will see a bigger plot, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me about the links and, and having comic book pages be part of your novel. Yeah, that was, it's so weird. It's, 
it's just funny when ideas come back into your brain, because the first time I thought of that, I think I was in my early 20s or I was in college and I was reading Cavalier and Clay, which I loved, of course. And I had been reading Chabin's work up to that point. I loved Mysteries of Pittsburgh. I thought Wonder Boys was a fun like publishing peak at publishing. Yeah. And, and I read Cavalier and Clay and I was just like, wow, I love this book. It's like everything I want in a novel. The only thing that's missing is that I wanted to read those comics in the book. I wanted to Absolutely. read the escapist, you know, I wanted to experience the escapist comics. And um, he eventually did that as a publishing kind of detour, but that stuck with me. And so when I was thinking about writing something out after the Pete books um, and the Star Wars novel was a fun detour because I had that idea before I wrote Poe, uh, and it was a good way to practice like outlining. But then I was like, I need to have comics in the story. If it's going to be a comic book noir and I'm going to be in this woman's head and telling the story of her story, I want to see the the product. Um, but I also didn't want it to be perfunctory and feel like, oh, he's showing off. He knows comic book people. They have art in there. It's not a, it doesn't add to the story. It had to echo and be in conversation with the prose. Um, and so when I was talking to my agent, Josh, about it, um, I said, we have to pitch it with a comic book page. Like we can't just send the mm -hmm. manuscript and say there will be comic pages. And I knew Zach Wagman at Flatiron, I knew he would get it because he's a comic fan as well. And he edits so many great books. So I was like, let me just get a sample page from Sandy and Sandy Gerald, the artist um, who did those sequences. I've known a long time. And when I reached out to him, I said, you know, are you up for this? Like, would you be game for this? And he, he was. And I really went to him first because not only is he a great artist, but he can, I didn't want the pages to feel like um, parody or imitation. Like someone's just trying to imitate the comics that came out then. I wanted him to evoke the style and, and be its own thing. And, and he did that. He's such a student of history and comic book history. Like he does these mock-up covers that feel like they could have come out at that time. That just blew me away. Um, and he did one for the links. He did a legendary links, like number one cover that I was just like, I want it for, I'm, I'm going to buy the art and just have it framed. I have like, I have, have the you, sample. Have that? you um, posted it online? Can I, not yet. Not yet. I'll send it to you. Okay, I, think it's, I think, yeah, it's, um, it was, it just, I like, it goes back to that sense of verisimilitude. So when we pitched it to Zach, we had a sample page and I said, this is what we want. And there's going to be these interludes. And I think that's what really like, not to say that he wouldn't have taken it as a novel, but I think that's what makes it different and makes it special and makes it feel like, like you're, you're shifting your brain and you're having these interludes that, are almost little breathers between the prose. And um, I think it, it makes it unique. Yeah. And I love that as not to spoil anything, but as the um, writer and artists change, the, the comic changes too in tone and in style. Yeah, no, that was a trip. And it was, it's, a, yeah, because Carmen obviously she writes these stories anonymously and then at a certain point they run out of scripts and they have to give it to a hack like a hack writer and a hack artist to meet the deadline and so sandy and i had a lot of fun writing that one sequence that was from a different creative perspective and you can tell like that's comics like that was a believable detour that someone would you know overly sexualize a character like lose the point of the character and make it just feel so default like she's got a sidekick like not to spoil it too much but it's just that to me is like one of the funniest sequences in the book. I, I, I agree. <laughs> Loved it. Um, Alex, this has been so fun. Secret Identity. Everyone should read it, look at it. It's wonderful. Before we go, do you have some book recommendations for us? I do. I do. Um, one, it just came out, uh, Like a Sister by Kelly Garrett is a fantastic um, 
suspense novel. It's it's a suspense novel for the social media age. It's really well done. Kelly's fantastic. She wrote a great cozy series, um, the Detective by Day books that I think she's just leveled up. And I hate leveled up as a term because it means like the earlier books weren't good. Like she's gone from great to like even greater with this one. Um, I'm just looking at my pile. Um, <laughs> I read Things Things We Do in the Dark by Jennifer Hillier is a really dark thriller. And she's, I don't know, she just keeps writing these great thrillers and she's just so fantastic. Um, the turn out by Megan Abbott, I think I'll just add to the chorus of people that were obsessed with that book. Like I was like, oh, she's going there. Like this is where this oh, book yeah. is going. Yeah, I'm like, this is going there. And um, another one that I really liked was Paradox Hotel by Rob Hart. It's just a nice um, sci-fi speculative mystery, time travel mystery. So if that's, I think it's, you know, a lot of people buzzed about the warehouse. I think this is much strong, not that it wasn't great, but uh, this one was, is really a, a just a, a next level book for him. Um, and I also love spy novels. So I read The, the Matchmaker by Paul Vidic, which mm. I love complicated gray spy stories like Le Carre. And so this feels like the, uh, the next generation of Le Carre novels, which is great. That's wonderful. Alex, thanks, thanks for having so me. Yeah. It's so good to see you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.